Hello, I'm Charles Clausen, your host of the Ampex Podcast, a show where we engage in conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators whose wild ideas and exponential thinking are reshaping the universe where we live, play, and work. I believe these powerful conversations will inspire you to pursue your dreams. I'm very excited to our, our guest today. Raj and I have been friends for four decades, and um, we're going to get into some very exciting uh, topics today around the future of banking, DeFi, blockchains, and just the way um, disruptive technologies are starting to accelerate and change everything, including the future of banking. So Raj, I was um, thinking back earlier today about when we first met and back in the early, early eighties in Houston, we both joined um, the training program at the largest Texas bank holding company, uh, first uh, uh, city bank corp of Texas. And you were fresh out of an MBA at Thunderbird and I was leaving a systems analyst job at um, Exxon and um, we met in that training program and have been friends ever since. No, no, it's been a great few years and, uh, and kind of we've always stayed in touch throughout the years and uh, a lot of good discussions around businesses you've been involved with, different roles I've been in. So always there's been a kind of a broad-based dialogue all along. Yeah, it's been funny, the proximity we've had to each other in our networks. Um, you, um, you left for City and went to Citicorp and um, I left for City and went to work and, and you know, workouts. So as a CEO, I was 29, I was a CEO of a, a turnaround system um, situation in Houston. But looking back to the early 80s in Houston, it was it was like a mini recession in Texas. I think there was 23% unemployment in Houston. Um, our bank was at that time the second largest bank failure in U.S. history behind Continental Illinois. <clears throat> then Robert Robert Abood came in from First Chicago and uh, took over our bank. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I remember we had a lot of lunch lunches where we would scratch our heads. So here we are in a major energy lending bank in the midst of a global energy crisis. Um, and we diversify in Texas real estate. So the, we were shortly thereafter, we failed again. So we were the second largest and shortly thereafter, we were another massive bank, bank failure because of, you know, strategy and how risk was perceived. But what I think is um, interesting when you left First City and joined Citicorp, it didn't take you long to get to Europe. Um, then you became the chief risk officer for Swiss Re, um, Allianz, which I think at the time is probably still one of the largest financial banking insurance organizations in the world, uh, Standard Charter. So you were the chief risk officer of some of the largest financial institutions, the largest financial institutions in the world, focusing on risk. So I, I just it thought it might be interesting to go back and look at 
what was going on in Texas in the mid 80s in the oil patch crash and um, what you know about risk now and kind of how you um, assess some of the strategies and what we were witnessing as, you know, junior level bankers. Well, I mean, the first thing about First City, which comes to mind immediately is that looking at an organization like that, you know, strategy drives everything. We had a very domestic Texas strategy and we invested in things that Texas did. So we were big on the oil side, big on the drilling side, big on the offshore side. So very, very heavy in energy, but more concentrated on real exposures that were in Texas. So you had kind of a, a concentration in industry, then you had also had a concentration in your own state. And then we added to that the second layer, which was real estate, which was amazing that we actually did that. And we did primarily Texas real estate. And then if you think further, we had a financial institutions area that actually did bank stock lending. So we did bank stock lending for, again, banks primarily in Texas. <laughs> so, so you look at it from that standpoint, strategically, we, we were a very large Texas bank that had concentration across the, or just across the total realm of what Texas did as a business. But you also have to think of it in terms of the layers. So the biggest renting people that were coming in were all oil and gas related. And then we financed the underlying real estate that they were housing themselves in. And then, of course, I'm not even going into the retail side of things. And then we also lent money to banks that were, again, relending in that same economy on a domestic level, whether they were retail banks. So I would say concentration and strategy. Kind of somebody never really sat down and said, are we really just strategically uh, in, the, in the right space from a diversification standpoint, or do we need something else? So maybe that's the first thing that comes to mind, looking at it today and looking back and sitting at a desk afar away and looking into Texas, I would say uh, it's almost something you would never do. Right. Well, I guess the, um, the, the oil patch grew for decades and Texas was um, had their own ego and their own wild west. Let's just go make it happen. And then the wildcatters and all of that. So risk was something that Texans and Texas banks were used to, but when it hits the fan, it hit really hard and it took, it took a lot of them out, including our bank. And, um, no, no, that, that was a sad period because it was a bank and also internationally what we had done. So we did some international diversification. If you remember, we had a London office, we had a Singapore office and we had a big London loan production office. But again, there we used our expertise and we got involved with oil and gas again. So we were in the same industry. So we were some of the first lenders for the North Sea oil. And I actually went and traveled there. We looked at North Sea oil deals that were done, for Norwegian Oil Consortium, just a number of different kinds of things that were happening in that part of the world, but also, again, back in energy. So, so we didn't even concentrate out of the industry when we went abroad. Right. So that, that was interesting. So you, you left Texas, moved to New York shortly thereafter. You moved to Europe. I remember um, visiting when you were in Brussels and um, chasing um, Ryan and Rika around the house. Um, so you started a, an adventure. So I think it'd be interesting um, for our, our, our viewers to kind of hear the overview of your 
the evolution of your career and how you ended up being the chief risk officer of the largest financial institutions in the world and um, kind of how that took you to where you are today, Raj. Um, now you're, you sit on the board of Vanguard Europe and uh, uh, AIB and other large um, financial institutions in the Middle East and uh, Africa and um, in Europe. And, and you're also an entrepreneur. So you went from the largest corporations in the world, and now you're starting to get into new opportunities in the future of finance. So kind of tell us how you evolved as a chief risk officer, and we'll eventually work our way back. How do you, how you have gotten into maintaining your board presence and advising the largest financial institutions at the same time, looking at new opportunities in the future of finance, which I think is, is exciting. No, no, happy to share that with you. I, th I think it was a, a kind of a journey that started very much so in Texas, definitely wanted to be in banking. So there was no question about the choice of banking. But at heart, I've always been a salesperson. So I've been a salesperson or somebody who wants to do deals. So in, in so my first part of my, my whole uh, career, including in Texas, was not really had nothing. Yeah, you had to understand risk because in those days, you didn't have separation of the transactors, people transacting actually were risk people. We we did the risk underwriting ourselves, but that changed over time as we as things matured. But I was more of a relationship person managing relationships. And when I went to New York, that's exactly what they took me for because I was basically building businesses and being a corporate banker, being a corporate advisor and doing deals. So that's how everything started. But um, once you, you get to be successful, and uh, just somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, well, you know, we'd like to have you in this special program that we're running uh, within the bank. But uh, it's kind of an unspoken thing. But every three years, we want you to see another business and do different things. And then we see how things go. But we want to develop people for our top management. So that's how I ended up where I ended up. And every three years, I ended up completely changing what I did. So I've been in retail banking. I've been done New York SME lending. I've done real estate lending in on the East Coast, uh, and uh, then I've done just I mean. Then I went into private banking, wealth management, but wealth management in an area where we dealt with in those days centimillionaires today that you would call them billionaires. So I dealt with them, but doing structured finance for them, lending money for pretty much anything they wanted to do from buying restaurants to buying homes in different countries and places. But then suddenly again, somebody tapped me on my shoulder and they said, well, by the way, I mean, there's some jobs abroad and with, because you're with Citigroup, if you really want to be in top management, we need to get you, you need to get some foreign experience. And I was quite happy in New York and I was didn't really want to move nice house uh, in New York and uh, on Long Island in New York and kind of enjoying life there. And my wife was also a banker working in, in New York, also with the same institution. So didn't really want to move, but then kind of they put up some opportunities. I still remember one was in Poland, one was in London. And so I said, well, I mean, Poland may be maybe a too harsh thing, but let's move to London. So I ended up in London uh, in uh, 1997. And uh, that's where kind of the career kind of blossomed very, very quickly. Uh, and, I, and I went in, and then I got more into the risk side, but a little bit by strange default, because I always was good in risk and I enjoyed it, but I was still a deal person. 
So then I ended up reviewing a business and we had something called um, business risk review. And what business risk review did was we were the guys set in to review the strategy of a business if it was not doing well and come back and report to the management committee of, of, of the company, of Citigroup, and write the reports that were necessary. So I failed the business, one of the major businesses in Europe. Then the CEO of the business came, well, listen, you failed me, but now come and help me fix it. But he needed a chief risk officer, a, a chief credit officer for his business. So that's how I ended up with my first risk job really coming in from completely the market side. So from there, it just went very, very rapidly because I went onto the board of two of our European entities that were quite large consumer banks. So I got very, very engaged with consumer banking and consumer risk. And from there, I got invited to my one of my first biggest jobs that was uh, the chief risk officer of Allianz. So because they had seen a very rapid turnaround of what we were doing in uh, in uh, Germany with the bank, and we had done an extremely good job of turning it around from certain level of profitability to being one of the most profitable banks on a return basis in Germany. And it was owned by Citigroup. And uh, I ended up being just solicited in and visiting with the CEO and the uh, CFO of uh, Allianz Group, which at that point was already a trillion dollar balance, balance sheet institution. And so in my I would say it was probably mid to mid mid thirties plus. I was already a top executive, became the chief risk officer for the group of a trillion dollar balance sheet company that was in insurance, asset management, and banking. So it was it was a huge jump. But whatever confidence they had in me when they visited with me, uh, they just wanted me to come and build a whole a whole central risk steering and risk function for a conglomerate. So that's kind of how I ended up with a, just a very large jump into a job. And then every job that came after was one invitation after another as I diversified the businesses I went into. So so, so that's a little bit the story in summary, but I ended up from Allianz to Swiss Re, which is interesting because I went from retail insurance at asset management and banking. Then I ended up going into reinsurance and Swiss Re was at that time one of the world's largest reinsurers and went into something completely different. And from there, again, I went into life insurance to one of the largest life companies in the UK. And uh, then I went back to private banking, some of my roots, and then I've ended up being invited on boards. So, and I know you turn a certain age, you want to do certain things. And I ended up uh, going to boards and boards, I'm in very high demand for financial institutions. So right. now I'm on, on multiple boards. So that's kind of how the risk career developed over time. So it, going back to city. Uh, Citicorp for a minute, the the thing that seems like catapulting you was um, getting involved in um, turning around problem situations. And I know um, with young people that are just starting out their careers, especially in, in big, big corporations, um, my daughter worked for um, New York Life in the private equity. Now she works in the CF or CEO's office at um, Snapchat uh, doing financial analysis, but I always have told Allison that if you really want to jump ahead in your career, find the biggest problems in the company and volunteer to go sort them out and fix them. And I think for people in their careers, sometimes it's scary to go take on a problem, take something that's broken and fix it. But in this case, uh, a bank in Germany asked you to come in and help 
sort it out, turn it around and fix it. And, you know, you did that successfully, then the world saw what you were doing. And then all of a sudden you're the chief risk officer for a trillion dollar financial entity, um, kind of at the pinnacle of risk management. And they ask you to help evolve their, their thinking and their processes around risks. So I, um, what other challenges in your career did you take on that continue to help develop skills and leadership and just taking on tough problems that no one else was too interested in? I think well, the first thing that started with, with this whole thing was curiosity. It was always being curious about the next role or the next assignment I got. And it wasn't even just roles. It was also the diversity of what was being shown to me. And I was never averse to going and looking at something that I didn't know much about. So when they mentioned to me, well, Citigroup's expanding globally, but we need people that have the corporate experience, which was my basic experience and, and coming more from the investment banking, corporate banking, advisory side of things. And they said, "What? but we need consumer bankers, people that understand consumer. So I was one of the few people that just opted and said, okay, I'll move to Europe with the consumer bank and I will be part of the consumer bank because that's the growing area. So you just take some risks. It was something I knew nothing about, but I went ahead with an open mind and started to understand it very quickly and got very comfortable with it. But the same thing happened when I was invited from Citibank Germany to join Allianz, which was the largest financial institution in Europe. So basically, I mean, this is a trillion dollar institution running a $450 billion bank, a 700 billion insurance company. And it already had close to 2 trillion in asset management because they own PIMCO in California, plus Allianz Global Investors, which is a big player in Europe. So they already own substantial companies. And you kind of suddenly are, are catapulted to the top. So I just went from being a normal managing director at Citibank, which was not that senior at that point, but you just took this chance and suddenly, uh, one important thing is take broad responsibilities because one thing that really catapulted me was I stepped in from the normal team leader jobs, all this kind of stuff of running a team. But suddenly when I went to Germany, I was running a bank. Yes, it was only a $20 billion bank or 15 billion. I felt it was still Deutschmarks at the time. It was 15 billion Deutschmarks. And, uh, and, but you're running a total bank. So suddenly you're the top person at the executive level and you're taking all the decisions. And I think that's the big game changer is that you need to find yourself. It may be a smaller pond, but suddenly you're at the top, at the top of it. But you have to gain your own understanding and your confidence in how you learn very quickly and adapt. Well, so the, the curiosity and just the continual learning serve, served you well. Um, I'm curious, making the leap from a $15 billion um, Deutsche Mark bank in Germany to a trillion dollar bank, how does the perspective change and how do you think about um, your focus and what you look into. I mean, your your scale is so much bigger. And you had you mentioned you have Pimco and you have other big operating divisions. How do you look at and get perspective around a, a financial organization that's that big and that diverse while trying to build up more insights into risk? Well, I think I would say that probably they did look at me at somebody that was not just coming from a smaller bank. They looked at me from somebody who came from Citigroup, the big entity. So I think that was one thing that they took 
took note of the fact that I had worked in very diversified businesses. So I had been in multiple businesses ranging from investment banking to, to private banking to retail banking. So they liked this whole diversity of, of knowledge that was there and it fit with them. And also they definitely liked the retail brand because we were very successful in Germany. We had turned it into a very successful organization. But perspectives changed substantially because going in, I did tell them, by the way, yeah, we do have an insurance division. We're just in the process of divesting it. So I understand insurance a little bit, but I'm no expert in insurance. And I was very transparent. They said, no, we just need somebody who really starts to build insurance risk management. Because in 2000, 2001, insurance risk management was quite in its early stages. I mean, the sophisticated risk management of today did not exist. So I was brought in to kind of think new in terms of managing risk for a financial conglomerate that had insurance, it had asset management, it had banking, it had other types of financial services, businesses, and to think about how do you steer risk. And also, the, I, can, I can just also say that the important factor was that this was a company, Allianz at the time was a company that had very double-digit billion excess capital. So they had huge amounts of excess capital. And then they bought Dresdner Bank, which was the second largest bank in Germany, which they already owned originally for many years, 25% of. They shifted to own 100%. So they wanted somebody that understood banking, but could also think of a way to help steer the overall business from a risk management standpoint that had these multiple levels of business. So it was more ex exploratory discussion with the CFO and other people that got me hired. So it was being very open about, listen, I'm going to have to look at the risk framework. We'll have to design something that's specific. And I ended up being one of the very young leaders, very young leaders in insurance risk management. And I was the second chief risk officer to be appointed in Europe for any large insurance group, because traditionally there were no, no, there were no chief risk officers in an insurance company. So I think, I think it was, it was this whole exploratory discussion of trying to think of risk in different manners. And then you just get better and better at it because risk is something that it exists in everything and it just, and again, I come back to that point of curiosity, asking the right questions, getting a better understanding. So setting a top risk for Allianz, when you came in, how disruptive were you, Raj, in your thinking about how you look at risk and how, where the, the organization needs to go to get a handle on the, the overall risk? Um, and, and make sure there was no major surprises that could risk your capital. How how disruptive were you in your approach, and how was the organization with you know the sounds like they had very little at that time, and bringing in discipline and and probably some accountability for division business unit managers that maybe didn't want accountability. How did that that innovation and disruption work? No, I think we were very disruptive. We were one of the first companies, but this was this had already started. We were looking at uh, economic value added as a concept there, which was which is a different com a different concept of how you steer businesses with the economic capital, use of economic capital. So that was the conceptual framework they wanted to work with. So they had defined this, let me call it risk steered profitability system that they wanted to run but they didn't have the risk modeling capability or component 
to have a dynamic model in place to manage risk. So it was quite interesting. So it was very, very early stage thinking, and it was very, very disruptive. And also it was very disruptive at the bank because we had a very traditional German bank that we owned, which was very large, 450 billion, about half the size of Citigroup, so quite substantial. Right. And uh, and I had to also oversee the risk management unit of that. So I became the chief risk officer of the group. And then also being very disruptive because US risk management and banking was already a bit ahead of Germany. And on the consumer side, they were miles ahead of Germany at the time. And in fact, Germany, they didn't like to do consumer lending. So it, it was it was quite disruptive. And uh, but also I had to learn. So I, uh, but but I had to learn by fire because when I came in, there were challenges in the bank they had just bought. And the first thing when I looked at it, I said, guys, we have a real challenge here. We need to do something. And I had to introduce some things that led to quite a bit of disruption in the banking business. We had to end up taking multi-billions of charges for a business that we really potentially didn't understand as well when we bought it. And it was having trouble because of the economic areas it was operating in. But uh, I had to so a lot of disruption on the banking side as to how things needed to be done, what parts of the business should be jettisoned. And probably I set up, I set up and designed a $30 billion restructuring bank based on what Citigroup did with their inst- institutional restructuring units. It was kind of dusting off old things that had been done elsewhere, but re- repurposing them in a completely new environment. So that's kind of with, with Allianz was a massively strong learning experience, but the basics were all learned at Citigroup. So the culture that you, you know, obviously disruption and change, you and I have always been innovators and change implies disruption of the status quo. How, how did you think about it? And how did you build a culture where people were understood that we had, we had challenges and that we needed to do things differently and we needed to do it fast. And we, we're going to have a $30 billion entity here, restructuring entity um, to, instead of point fingers, jump on the bus and say, okay, um, you know, a lot of it's leadership when you have a good vision and you know where you want to go, it's getting them to follow. And we all know culturally Germans are very process oriented and whatever the process is, they tend to love to follow it. How does disrupting the process and changing everything and doing, doing it fast? I mean, that's a, that's a major leadership challenge. How did you build the team and um, get people all moving in the same direction, Raj? Well, in some ways, I mean, I was lucky because there was no team. And now this sounds odd, but the, actually there was, at because Allianz was an extremely wealthy company before it bought the bank. It was a very, very successful AAA rated insurance company. And so they were one of the few AAA rated companies from those days in the world. And so they just had massive amounts of capital. So they their view was more that you they ran the company a bit more like a like some kind of a, a private equity venture capital concept was that you gave a plan and then you lived up to your plan and delivered it, but you have a lot of you had a lot of autonomy in your company. So if you were one of the insurance companies, you had huge amount of autonomy in running it and almost too much. And so, so, so that's what the company tradition was. So you didn't interfere as long as you did the planning process with them. They more looked at how is your performance versus what you promised. And that's how they were managed. So it was more managing of a planning cycle 
and a strategy cycle than it was anything else. So they looked at themselves more as a company that had many, many companies part of it. But with the bank, they suddenly had to change the world because suddenly the excess capital that we had was almost all absorbed by the bank in the purchase of the bank. So suddenly we had to say, oh, capital is actually scarce. We need to do some capital steering here. We need to understand where the risks are. We need to do everything. So, so the cultural change was easier. Why? Because I was somebody who came from abroad. The company did make a very core decision once I arrived that they wanted to be a global company. They were very international, but they started viewing themselves as global. And they said, we're going to change the language of our corporate headquarters from German to English. Now, that was a massive move. And I was part of that move. I didn't drive it. It was driven by, <laughs> by the other team there. But we changed our language to English. But then also, in building my team, what I did was something very different. I Instead of hiring a whole bunch of people from the outside in the market, I went to the 14 largest companies we we owned across the world. And I met with the CEOs. I did a meet and greet and flew to Australia, flew to Singapore, flew to Thailand, flew to America, to California. We had multiple companies out there. And, and you know, we had PIMCO, we had Fireman's Fund in California. We had, uh, we had Allianz Life in Minneapolis. So I went to see each CEO, CFO, and I introduced myself. And I told them that I wanted two or three of their best people to come and work for me. And then they ultimately would become the future chief risk officers, chief actuaries, or whatever we needed in the companies. But they, they could also understand how we worked in Germany, but they helped me build the risk management structure. So I think that's what we did. And we were probably at that time leading edge in terms of building an insurance framework because they weren't very good insurance risk management frameworks. And then we had, had to add to that a banking framework and we had to add to that asset management, which was a bit more established. So, so but, but the cultural change was all about, I would say, giving a people a chance, talented people a chance to build something. So they felt they owned it, they were building it, and they really became the ambassadors. And, and we really did very well to where we went from a zero risk management framework for a group like that size. I'm not saying there wasn't risk management inside of a bank. Of course there was. Right. But in the global framework and have people work with it and really accept it, it took us about three years, but we were there. We were there with that. Wow. I mean, that's that's like moving a mountain range, not moving a mountain because of the scope and the breadth and the, of the organization and all the different challenges. So, I mean, I think this is um, really becoming a, a discussion around leadership and vision and helping big organizations chart a path into the future, which is, um, it's, it, it takes really strong communication skills and probably fantastic listening skills to get people to jump on the bus and, and trust you and also trust that this was something that was important for the organization to move to the next level and its development in an organization. What were, Raj, what were some of the biggest people challenges you had to, that got in the way of this, this tra really transformation to look at the world from a risk risk point of view and starting to think about EVA. It sounds like you were early adopters of that economic value and analysis um, process and a lot of moving parts. 
No, I think there were a lot of moving parts, but I think before I go into a little bit of some of the challenges, I think the one important part was that I had very open CEO who was completely open-minded and his view was, Raj, you figure this out and you advise us on what to do. And one thing that changes life very quickly from being a managing director, once you put C in front of your name, suddenly the buck stops with you. You have to figure it out because there is nobody else to figure it out. So you got to work on it. You got to understand and start figuring it out. But you did need the blessing from the two C's. Your chairperson and your CEO are very relevant if you want to be a chief risk officer and really get buy-in for what you want to do. Because if people know they're backing you or they're behind you, that doesn't mean that you have to go to them for everything. That's not the case at all. But I'll just give you the example of Allianz. Germans are very, very structured in their approach. So we had our, I just joined and we had our annual get together of the top 300 leaders of the company, the 300 top executives of the firm. And we had a very, very annual offsite that was done at just fantastic locations, but it was about giving out the message for the next year. But Germans are very good at signaling. I was absolutely new. First thing they had me do a speech which was important to talk about risk management. So they kind of, that was a blessing given to a new person coming in who was very fresh in his 30s while everybody in the room was 40s, late 40s, 50s. And to come and give the view of what you wanted to do globally and what was the what you were trying to do in a very short thing. And then the second thing, then they signal by, seat, by seating you at the chairman's table one night, seating you at the CEO's table, then they know that this person is blessed. So that also helps. It's not just all about intelligence. It's about how people position you. At that age, probably I didn't realize what was happening. I felt very good about it. But today, I think that got me positioned because people could see, okay, well, this is somebody that I really need to get to know. And and I'm being very social and being a marketing guy and being more of an outgoing person I didn't hesitate to go and see anybody. They said, come to Australia, and I would get on a plane and go to Australia and see them. And so so, so, so I think, but now some of the challenges you face is really bringing about change, especially with the bank. Within four weeks of being there, I started looking at a lot of risk elements, and I came up with some questions. And when I asked the questions, I got some very strange answers. Then I had to tell the CEO and CFO right away, listen, we've got some significant problems we need to look at right now. And I kind of explained to them what the problems were. Now, this is a shock because remember, they just bought this institution (laughs) and they paid about 27 billion euros at that time for that institution. And you're telling them, hey, listen, I think we got a giant problem here. And that was true. We did have a giant problem because the loan portfolio was not in good shape. So I did the proper reviews and then I told them, listen, there's only one way of doing this. We need to set up a whole restructuring unit because there's billions of billions of assets that need to be taken into and be, be in a restructuring mode. And, and, and to do that as a very young person and be able to go to the board and explain to them what it was, you have to have a lot of confidence. Now, I did get some help from some smart people and I did use consultants, but the ideas were not the consultants. The ideas were mine. And I really felt that if we set up a proper restructuring unit and we brought in talent that had already done restructuring in different places, that would be a good thing to do. And I hired the CEO, I proposed the CEO to the group, all those kinds of things. But you did face real challenge from some of the incumbents in the bank. They didn't want me on the risk side to oversee. So there was a giant problem to say, 
why should somebody, because they didn't know I was a banker when I was hired. They thought, oh, why should somebody from Allianz oversee risk at the bank? And for them, it was like, no, the risk has to end with the bank. So we had to work out frameworks where I said, no, this is a group. And the group, the bank takes substantial risk. It puts the risk of the capital of the group at risk. So we kind of started running things very, very differently. But you had real kind of pure intellectual differences between insurance and, and banking at the time. Some of the human challenges came from that. Some of the other challenges came from the fact of just uh, having traditionally been more like a organized like a commonwealth of independent states that was managed more by their PL and ability to deliver on plans to suddenly saying, well, capital is a key component of what you do. Capital at risk is the real issue. Uh, your risks matter to us on all those kinds of things. It was quite, uh, it was quite challenging, but you had to get their buy-in. That's probably one of the most important things I did learn. It's not about just yourself. And what you think, it's about making sure they understand why you're doing something. So there were, there were a lot of human challenges. There were a lot of human challenges with senior people because uh, risk was the first intrusive department where we created what I would call dotted lines to me for all the risk officers in all the companies. But in reality, it was a hard line because I paid their bonuses. So you can call it <laughs> dotted line or, 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 or hard line. But, but at the end of the day, I had substantial input into the bonuses. And that changes immediately who, who they think of as their boss when you know you're paying, you're paying things. So it's also to get this whole alignment of structures, um, but also being very open and learning because I did tell people where I needed help in insurance because that was new to me. So you also have to be open to accept the fact that you need help. You need have to have people around you that understand things better. And wherever you're weak, you want to show you have your best man or woman there in that position that's advising you at all times. So uh, I'm assuming that most from what I've heard is most of the risk were in the banking side of the business and insurance had less. But I can imagine reinsurance if, um, if Allianz did that, that, I mean, if you had a disaster, it could be many multiples of billions of dollars if something really bad oh, happened. Absolutely. absolutely. We came up with very, very new concepts, very new concepts for a company, uh, like an insurance company. So we, we came up with ideas like uh, looking at, uh, at risk protection from reinsurance, because we were an insurer primarily. We did reinsurance as well, but we were primarily a primary insurer. So we were purchasers of, re of, of, uh, of um, uh, reinsurance, but I started to buy more higher levels of reinsurance because we used reinsurance as a capital alternative, whether we should need to put capital in something or whether we should reinsure it. We, we started managing capital very, very actively. And also I had a very good CFO to work with and, and, and the CFO was very conscious of these things. So just a lot of, a lot of new concepts introduced, like, like how much do we want to protect our earnings volatility for one thing? So I kind of brought concepts in as well. Should we protect the earnings volatility with reinsurance to make sure that we don't have a loss larger than 25% of our annual income? So we set some frameworks around what we wanted to do 
so this got involved with lots of things. So you really had to have more financial concepts, but these were very new things for insurers to think of, not so much in managing just risk, but managing the company. So, you know, what kind of volatility, because again, people don't like volatility of earnings when, you, when you're an investor and we're, we're a largely held stock. So the question was, do we want to have earnings, but we want to have smooth earnings, but yes, it'll cost something in reinsurance side and other things. But if we can say we don't have a loss beyond X for certain events occurring, that would give immense immense uh, uh, power to the overall discussion that we have with our investors. And in fact, I think in insurance, I did the first open investor day for risk management insurance where we had 40 analysts come and attend the whole day to understand what we were doing. I did that in year three after I had built the risk management framework for an insurance company. And we could tell them that we were leading edge in what we were doing. So then that was something. So also it was also this common side of my sales side comes in because the, the most important role in a chief risk officer's job is not just the management of risk, it's being the translator of risk so people understand what risk is. You make risk transparent so they can see it and the risk transparent so they can manage it. So it's just a very kind of a different kind of role. It's not just about control. It's also about gaining understanding of the risks and also remembering that if you don't take risk, you don't make money. So it's also understanding that if you're in a risk business or in financial services, you do take risks, but how do you uh, how do you do risk? Now today, all these all these ideas are well developed, but we were the first generation of chief risk officers, which is not long ago. Which means I've only been a, not been a chief risk officer for now about one or two two years. I mean, now people talk about things like risk tolerances, risk limits, but more risk tolerances and having risk appetite and all these kinds of things. We were the first generation to develop these concepts. So now these are quite developed concepts and they're talked about very openly. Nobody used to do this. But the most learning experience in gaining understanding of risk is as a pure reinsurer. And that would be more the role of Swiss Re. Uh, because, I mean, at one time, I don't remember the exact numbers, but for one particular country, a fairly large OECD country, uh, basically, we reinsured 25% of the high value lives in that country. So, 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 I mean, reinsurance is where you really have to understand risk, uh, risk portfolios, diversification, correlation, all these kinds of things. And it's based on observation and then it's based on estimation because sometimes you don't have enough data. So what I loved about uh, understanding of what made me think a lot differently about risk and reinsurance was you're actually you're measuring and trying to quantify and trying to price risk, which has huge uncertainty in it. So you're almost putting a pricing on uncertainty. So for me, that makes you think very differently than, than normal risk. So you just don't think about risk as being a risk. You think about risks in scenarios. You think about risk very differently. So today I would say I'm very passionate about risk, but I like to think about risk. If somebody tells me to think about risk, I can sit there and I can do a risk assessment of the company by asking them a lot of questions of what they do. Because at some point, you know, you need a risk framework. You need, need to be able to identify risks and then know how to 
get report get them reporting coming through get the reporting coming through and to manage and mitigate risk so it's it's all very similar but very different thought processes you need to have and drive those thought processes to get people to really understand risk and the importance of it well that's that's interesting if you think about risk today and um back in the mid 80s when the texas oil patch was um in the tank uh risks were simpler than they are today with the you know coming out of the pandemic all the supply chain issues with the ukrainian um war with russia with all the polarity and politics and um just the complexity in society there's when you look at the disruptive technologies that are coming from AI and machine learning to sensors to robotics to supercomputing the changes in healthcare everything is changing and it's changing fast so from a a pure general business perspective um you run the risk of being disrupted by an exponential technology that could take the cost down by 10% i mean 10 times 10x so um when you think about business risk and strategy i suspect that there's millions of business private companies owners that don't think about um the risk as a revenue streams then what are the key things that could disrupt it and now it's we're not talking about a competitor coming in at 2 or 3% better margins we're talking about a competitor coming in with a whole new business model and technology that can totally totally shut you down so um how do you think about that raj and all the changes that are coming so fast in every aspect of our life Well I think you know it it, it depends because there's industries that are very sophisticated in risk management and there are there are people that are very sophisticated in risk management but then with all these changes coming I think the main thing is as a risk manager somebody who's trying to understand risk you have to remain very open and not ever think that you're suddenly the expert in risk you still need to think about risks because when something new is being introduced of anything you need to think well what are the real implications here what are the real risks from the use of the product what are the real risks from anything else so i'll give you a very simple example so in in the days when i was chief risk officer at uh, at swiss re genetically mod- modified foods were just just becoming gmo was just being introduced right and uh, we looked at it and also we had a lot of we had scientists nuclear physicists on our staff in risk management and we would look at the stuff with quite detail because at the end of the day if we were to insure and reinsure companies selling gmo we needed to understand what are the risk implications the latent liability indications that can elements that can come through because when you think about something like asbestos when people built those beautiful asbestos sheets they probably never thought that this stuff would be carcinogenic years away and the way it would deteriorate and the way it could get into your lungs would be absolutely a disaster and you could have massive liability if you provide liability insurance for that right so there was a lot of learning from the past but when this gmo started to get introduced i had lots of discussions with the big big boys and girls in that industry which included some swiss and some american companies 
And finally, after a lot of visits and a lot of scientific work underpinning it, I said, guys, this is not a risk we can take right now. So don't think we should we should get and and the main thing we do is we get exclusions and reinsurance and say, well, we cover this, but we don't cover your GMO food. So so that gives you an example, but you have to be thinking about things quite deeply when new technologies are being introduced to think of the positive benefits of it, but think of what are the side risks for that company or for the users that are coming into play that play like because when you're thinking, because see, the buck stops with with liability. The buck stops with reinsurance at the end of their non-insurance because most of the large losses are paid by a reinsurance company. So you really have to think deeply about things and try to figure out what are the risks in that particular business. So I mean, so, so for me, a simple thing, if a company doesn't have any concept of risk, and, and I don't want to say that in, my, in one of my companies, they didn't have a concept of risk. They definitely had a concept of risk, but they didn't have a structured way to think about it. So it was easy for me to help them manage their financial risk side because that's quite easy because you have formulae, you have certain ways of monitoring the risk in investments, whether it's value at risk, it's tail var, there's different, different ways you can measure it. But I think the most important thing to get them to think about risks in companies was to say, we, we created a program and actually a concept called a top risk assessment. So we would actually do two days of workshops with a company of our own company. This is our own division to say, we want them to introduce a process called top risk assessment and update it on a quarterly basis where they review all the top risks of the company. It sounds very obvious. You think somebody would be doing it. But in most companies, nobody was doing anything like that. So then in one place, they had a consolidated view of their own view of risks. And we did it from top down with the top people, and we did it bottoms up as well. So you what, what you realize, people from the top think risk looks very different from what people from the bottom do. Not that they're not aligned, but they're maybe more granular for, from the bottom side. So we did some things like that, but this was very, very creative. Now it sounds so obvious and people do all this stuff. But even in 2000, to introduce a top risk assessment for an overall enterprise like an insurance company was a very uncommon thing to do. And it was very funny because my daughter did her internship at Allianz very recently, unrelated to myself. She applied on her own. She got into the thing and she said, um, dad, there's something they told me that still it's left over from your days here. And believe it or not, the top risk assessment still exists. Now, this is I'm talking about 20 years since I've been chief risk officer and I introduced that there. But the top risk assessment is found as a value, valuable tool. Of course, they've built electronic tools to help with it and all that kind of stuff. But the concept still exists and it works even now because people like the workshops. They like to talk about the risks. They like to reevaluate them on a quarterly basis. So, so also, I'd like to think that we've thought of a lot of innovative things. Now, these things really sound like basic things when you think of them. But in 2000, these were not basic things. I wonder... Um, how basic they are in um, middle market companies in, in general. But, you know, when you talk about your top risk assessment, you're looking at risk to revenue streams, but more importantly, you're looking at risk to capital. And if you can reinsure, if you can reinsure a risk um, and take a few points of margin out um, to minimize a 25, potential 25% impact on capital, that's huge. 
So, I mean, that's, that, that's a different way of thinking about when you have to maintain capital for regulators um, to think about strategy, because you, you could have two different strategies and one could maybe be more profitable. Uh, you might pick up a couple hundred basis points then, but you also put the business at risk if something unexpected happens. No, but I think coming back to your, your point was really that with all these new technologies, it were you no, you need to continually think about learning about the risks of anything new that's introduced. So you see, you look at Chat GPT today, or you look at anything. What are the risks from this? Are there true risks in here? You have to think of it because there could be, and and risks come in a broad set of risk families. It could be that there are ethical risks in it. It could be that they're just actual erroneous kind of things there. So example, right. let me check GP, I've, GPT. I've been playing with it a little bit myself. And what's interesting for me, it kind of writes very good notes on very generic, very basic things in very high quality. But it writes it with a su super high level of confidence, which is maybe beyond the facts that underpin it. So maybe I think, so I'm just learning things. So maybe the question is, what can you rely on this for? And what are the failings of chat GPT and analyzing the world? So what are the deficiencies? Do we really understand them? Yes. And see, this is the kind of way a reinsurer or an insurer would think, more a reinsurer. They would want to know, okay, what, what are the implications here? I mean, so there's the general implications. Okay, this can, have, this can be a great tool for people because it makes their life easier. Or it's, it's a risk that could mean a lot of unemployment for people. So it depends on which aspect of risk you're looking at. Or it can be that, listen, this doesn't have a high confidence level when you get into real technical issues. It's, it's writing a note with confidence, but it's pulling facts that are a little vague. So, I mean, I'm just making this up so you understand. So, so right. you, you have to assess everything that you're doing. And see, but, 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 but always I like to tell people, risk is quite simple. I mean, risk is like... Everybody risk manages every day. I mean, you 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 shave yourself, you look clean, or do you or you put your makeup on, you look in the mirror, you do, you're you're basically going through a checklist. And risk is kind of thinking through the checklist of potentially what can happen, what are the downsides, and have you tried to mitigate it in advance? So, you know, if you've just eaten food, you kind of look at your face and make sure there's not some food hanging on the right side of you. <laughs> That's also risk management in of itself, in the most basic thing. So I think that if you think of risk management as a real technical topic, yeah, you can look at it purely technically if you want to. But actually, risk management is much more basic. It's about, see, now in a company, what do I think the real definition of risk management for a big corporation should be? Right. So I'll give you my view of a big corporation or a financial company would be risk should help manage the volatility of the economic value of a company. So that's what the way I look at it. So it's managing your risks and your risks can be anything. It can be from reputational risk, which is more qualitative to your quantitative balance sheet risks. But you're trying to manage the volatility of risks that are that you're carrying as a company. Because it's not that you don't, you won't, again, in every business, you'll have to take some risk. There's very few risk, riskless businesses. But the question is, are those risks understood? Are they evaluated? Do you report on them enough? Do you understand them well enough? And uh, do you really do a proper risk assessment? And, and again, you know, when people talk about strategy, 
for a financial services company, because I'm going to stick to financial services, because I do consider myself definitely stronger in that. But it applies to anything. It applies to any company. Actually, the same framework can be applied to any company. But but for me, it's you figure out a strategy, you automatically do a risk strategy at the same time. Because in a way, your strategy, you have to risk assess it to understand what risks are you really taking. And that's for any companies, not just financial risks. So sometimes people can, you know, confuse a chief risk officer with, okay, this only applies to financial services companies. Actually, I think most large companies need a chief risk officer and don't have it very often. And maybe very often just a CFO kind of performs that surrogate role in a smaller company of trying to understand the risks. Of course, their focus is P&L, but sometimes they look broader. Right, right. Well, I mean, I think it's a, a definite mindset and a conversation around um, in this country, our our whole healthcare delivery system and um, risk um, to doctors and uh, clinicians who take care of patients with malpractice and everything else. Um, it, it drives up the cost of healthcare. And in the US, we have a huge emerging crisis with not enough doctors and nurses to take care of patients. I was talking to uh, someone uh, yesterday at the VA, and up to 50% of their positions and departments are unstaffed. So if you're trying to take care of people, and your administrative documentation and overhead burden keeps increasing, and you're expected to work 70, 80 hours a week, I mean, there's a huge level of burnout. And I think that's probably a whole nother conversation, Raj, but, you know, how societies look at risk and what you try to mitigate can have a big impact in, you know, even getting doctors anymore in this country. Well, I think, I mean, we had a, we had a real live test of broader risk risk and resilience programs in COVID. So people were forced into risk management. Very all of a sudden, people that didn't even do it were all suddenly forced because you you had to be a risk manager when you're doing that. You had to understand what was going on at all times. You needed your reporting. You needed your decisioning processes. So I think in the world, pretty much every industry became risk managers because they had to understand what risks in my business really facing from this current pandemic. And they were risks they never thought about before. Because even if you look at insurance and reinsurance, and I was just sitting with some reinsurers the other night, I mean, reinsurance faced massive losses during this period. So the reinsurers have suffered some more than others, and I'm not going to name the ones that suffered. But but actually, they said what, what had happened was they had actually well understood pandemic risk to life insurance. So they understood if you have a lot of concentrated lives in London, and if you have a pandemic there, and a lot of high value lives die, then you'll have problems. And you and, and reinsurance is all based on diversification. And if your diversification is not good, you can lose your shirt. But now what happened was they had two things happening. They had a pandemic, a lot of people died, a lot of them were insured. So of course, the reinsurers had to pay a lot of money. But the second part, which they hadn't anticipated, was business interruption. But business interruption is usually fairly diversified. Let me explain that a little bit. And also lives. If you have 
a pandemic or you had some kind of thing, it happened, SARS happened in Hong Kong. It was quite contained. But suddenly when you say it's across the world and governments are shutting down, <laughs> yes, it's across the world. So the concept of diversification went away as far as business interruption insurance because you were triggering insurance everywhere without any diversification. But you just didn't think it was plausible because it hadn't happened before. <clears throat> or when it happened before, it happened in times where it wasn't really recorded as such. Because I'm sure when there was the plague, the plague was a pandemic. But people were not insured, so it didn't really matter. People just died. So now, but not today, a lot of lives are insured or they have basic insurance of some kind. So it's a very different thing. And the same thing with business interruption. There were no such thing as business interruption, so people didn't count it. But when you had a pandemic, suddenly you had every city in the United States was closed down. They couldn't go anywhere. Or every city in Europe was shut down. So then you had suddenly business insurance claims from everywhere. So the, the, the pain that they've had in 21, 22, has come back this year with reinsurance being much tougher and wanting substantial rate increases to do business because they've paid for losses for two years. So just giving you thoughts on just daily risk management in life. I mean, I mean in the, you know, everybody does risk management on a daily basis, but you need some structured approach. So for me, like the top risk assessment, fantastic. Kind of work that you can use practically, but you want it to be done by people close to the risks because they understand the risk better than anybody. Fantastic, fantastic advice. Well, Raj, um, this has ended up being a, a masterclass in um, financial institution um, risk management and strategy and leadership of disruptive change. And I think we will probably leave it at that for today. And we'll have to follow up with another conversation on the future of banking and insurance and DeFi and, and blockchains and what the technology is going to do to the industry and how banking is going to change in the future. But uh, thank you so much for these, these great insights and sharing your, your experiences. I'm sure our viewers are going to come back for more. Well, no, thank you very much, Charles. It's a pleasure to speak. And this is just like me, to be honest, this is like our normal conversation. So probably it, it the structure is good, but you know, we can always structure it more and tailor it more to more specific things. But this was just a great start to have a discussion. And as you know, I'm sitting in Muscat, Oman, and you're sitting in uh, in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and we're having a, a dialogue like this, but it's just like having you sitting in the home and, and chatting. And then we have an audience of some kind somewhere. Yep. Well, this is fantastic, Raj. I think they gained so many insights. And, um, you know, one of the things that spurred this whole podcast was um, trying to ignite people's curiosity and pas passions to learn, learn about the future, learn about the new technologies and not run from AI and artificial intelligence because they can be our friends and they can be tools that can help us be more effective and can help us solve these massive world challenges. So we'll have more conversations uh, to come. Now look forward to it and, uh, and have a great, great day. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Ampex podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure not to miss future episodes and please rate the show wherever you get your podcast. Thanks to our awesome production team, Lindsay Soderberg, Social and Digital Marketing, 
Taylor Higgins, video production, and Seth Nielsen, marketing. See you next time.